The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. You pray with me again. Father, you are a speaking God. We would have never known you. We would have never experienced you. We would have been like blind men groping in the dark. Had you not chosen to reveal yourself and you have chosen to reveal yourself in word. Yes, indeed, even the stars above declare the glory of your name. But most clearly, most powerfully, the saving revelation of you, our God, it comes through the word. In days of old, it was through prophets. But in these days, through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, the word. As we come to the scriptures this morning, this book that gives us account of who he is, this too, the breathed out word of God. We pray, Father, that we would receive it as what it is that you would help us to recognize that what we hear this morning is not the words of men, but the words of God. By the power of your spirit, Father, would you take this word and call men to life? Would you sustain us? Would you feed us? Would you strengthen us? Would you show us that which was yet unseen by our hard and oftentimes foolish hearts? In short, Father, we're asking you to do your work, to do what only you can do. We ask it for your glory and we ask it for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your feet one more time, please. We continue working verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We are still in the second chapter, reading verse 11, down through the end, verse 22. This is the holy, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All God's people said, Amen. May be seated. So if you have been with us over these last four Lord's Days, you know that we have been working together to consider the question of division, specifically the division between Jew and Gentile. Essentially, in the minds of the biblical authors, the whole world, we're all divided up. Either we are the chosen people of God, we are Israel, we are the Jews, or we are the others, we are the rest. Now, we saw this beginning to take form all the way back in the first chapter where Paul used language like, us and you also. We see here in chapter 2, he talks about that which is made in the flesh by hands, those who are called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision. He also talks about those who are far away compared to those who were near. He calls us to remember, you'll recall, to remember your former estate. Not only were we lost and separated from God, dead in our sin, children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but we as Gentiles, we as those who are counted as the others, were to remember the, those special hurdles that were between us and God that the Jew did not face, that we were hopeless and without God. 
We were alienated and cut off from the people of God, having no standing before him, having no right to the promises that he had made to his people via covenant. He says that we are to remember. That we're to remember that this isn't just some man-made artificial division that exists horizontally between Jew and Gentile, but there's a very real separation, a very real division, not just between us and man, but between us and the living God. Remember, you who once were far off. But then we come to one of those magnificent but statements in Scripture. I told you last week, if you like the way life is going, a statement of but is very scary. But when you recognize just how desperately you need salvation, how desperately you need to be brought near, and you hear piercing through the darkness, through the darkness and through the death, you hear the word of God coming to you and saying, but now. Then was death, but now. God has done a thing, but now in Christ Jesus, we have been brought near by his blood. Those of you that were here last week, you remember that we talked about just how near we have been brought. How with the tearing of the veil, the eventual destruction of the temple with all its separated and segregated courts, how we have been brought in through the veil, through that veil that is the flesh of Christ Jesus by means of his own blood, we have been brought to the very presence of God into the holy of holies, the true holy of holies, the heavenly temple, the place where God dwells, the place where for centuries it was only the high priest that could go in and he only once a year. And even then with great fear that he might die in the holy presence of God. We're brought near. How near? As near as Christ Jesus is, seated at the right hand of his father in glory. So I called you last week. I gave you some homework last week. I assigned to you to go home and read Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10 and to worship. Did you do it? If not, I encourage you to do exactly that. Go home as a family, read through Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10, and celebrate just how near you have been brought to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul's going to continue. Paul's going to continue when we get down to verse 19 to celebrate all that God has done, to celebrate all that it means to be brought near to God. We're going to read there in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You once were, but now no longer. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You who were not a people, you are now a people. My people, the people of the living God, a holy temple of the Lord, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's not just that you have been brought near to God, but he has been brought near to you. You himself are the place in which he dwells here. So again, I tell you, when we come to chapter nine, uh, verse 19, Paul is going to continue to expound and to celebrate. But what we find right here in the middle, verses 14 through 18, is we see him telling us how God has done this. What did he do and how has God done it? What all did he have to overcome by the power of his word? You remember that that's really the focus that began all the way back at the end of chapter one. This is all about the power of God. That same power by which God raised his son, Christ Jesus, from the dead, raised him into heavenly places and seated him at his right hand. This is a powerful working of God. He's going to show us what was one of those hurdles, just one more hurdle that God had to overcome by the power of his word. And what he shows us here is that there's not only separation, but in verse 14, we find not only is there division and separation, but there's hostility that must be dealt with. He says in verse 14, Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In verse 16, so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Not just division, hostility. Hostility between Jew and Gentile. Now, again, a necessary division and separation, a division and a separation instituted by God, which led to an unnecessary, even a sinful hostility and enmity between the Jew and the Gentile. Now, we can be tempted as we sit on this side of the cross growing up in America uh, where we don't feel the same Jew-Gentile division necessarily right before our eyes. We may be tempted to think this was just a thing for back then. But what I need you to see this morning as we work through this text together, what God desires for you to see as we work through this text together is the reality that in Christ Jesus, God isn't just calling enemies to come together and coexist. He isn't just calling enemies to come together and call a truce for the sake of our Father. He's calling us together and making peace. 
and unity and love, a household, a family, a man, one man joined together under the headship of Christ Jesus. For he himself is what verse 14 says. That's where we'll be this morning. For he himself is our peace. Now we know who the he is here, surely. This whole section before this, we were talking about all that Christ Jesus has accomplished by means of his body, his flesh, his giving of his life, his powerful resurrection. He, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he, the he is Christ. What you see here, he says, for he himself is our peace. Now in, in Greek, whenever you find language like this that stacks up it's, it's interpreted as he himself it's meant to drive home a point of emphasis but you don't have to understand the Greek to understand the point we speak like this as well don't we you can imagine someone's gone to Washington DC and they get to go on a tour of the White House and you come back and you tell your friends we got to go and see the White House we got to go and tour the White House and the president himself came to see us it's making clear that this is something that he did Christ Jesus himself, he himself is our peace. It's something that he's done. Not something he accomplished through some intermediary. Not just some message that he sent to us through one of his holy angels. This is something Christ himself has done. He himself. But you notice it doesn't just say that Christ has made peace. It doesn't just say that he has accomplished peace. It doesn't just say that he has come to offer peace. What does it say? He himself is our peace. Prince of Peace, he is our peace. It's an important message for us to hear this morning in a day when so much of contemporary Christianity is little more than just a moralistic movement. We, we act as though all Christ Jesus came to do was to show us an example of what it means to love God and to love your neighbor. He came down and said, you better love God with all that you have and all that you are. Now follow my example. Buckle down. Chase hard after me, and I'm going to show you what it looks like to fulfill the law. I'm going to show you what it looks like to honor my father. I'm going to show you what it looks like to make peace with God and with each other. And beloved, to be clear, Christ Jesus is our example. We are called to imitate Christ, our older brother. In addition to this, we know that he is absolutely a teacher, the greatest teacher that's ever lived. His disciples did not do wrong by calling him rabbi. So clearly he has come to teach and he has come to set for us an example, but he's also come to accomplish. He's come to actually do something. And that's the question that for these last five years that I've been your pastor, how often have you had me look you in the eye and say, but what did he actually do? What did the cross actually accomplish? I'm reminding you, it's not just a Hallmark card. It's not just a love letter from God. It's not just an invitation. It's a thing that happened and a thing that was accomplished. So let's think back to some of the things that Christ Jesus has said. He said that he came to destroy the works of the devil. Promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15, he would crush the head of the serpent. The accuser, the one who brings charges, truthful charges against God's children before the courtroom. They're sinners. They do not deserve your love. They're sinners. They deserve death. Christ Jesus came to crush him. That we might be set free. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To set us free from death and sin and Satan and slavery to all that the flesh entails. He's come to crush the head of the serpent. He's come to set us free. He came, 1 Peter 3.18 says, he came to bring us to God. That in him, he transports us, he carries us, he brings us to God. Therefore, he can say that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Except through me, you'd still be enslaved to sin. Except through me, the charges of the devil would still stick to your account. Except through me, you would have no access to the Father. This is why he goes on to say that I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit. But if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and he withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and there they are burned. He reminds us that it isn't just about believing in him from some distance. It isn't just trusting in something that he's done. It's being found in him, united to him. We talked again about this last week. 
This reality, it's a real and living union. It's a vital union. It's a union in which we find all of our hope and all of our life and all of our energy in him, in Christ. Isn't this what Paul speaks of the Christian? It's always about being in him. It's only in Christ. And it's in Christ that we realize that the gospel is a story of things that have been done. The gospel message is not come and do. The gospel message is it has been done. And this is just a, this is a side note for you as you come to read your scriptures, as you study the word of God, as you think about your own salvation, anytime you find yourself thinking about that which you should do, and beloved, there is plenty that you should do. As a child of God, there is plenty that you should do, letting your light shine before men that they may bring honor and glory to your Father in heaven. Absolutely. There's plenty that you should do. But anytime you come to a scripture and you find your heart and your mind saying, go and do, that's not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news. It has been done. What has been done will power the stuff you do. It will affect the stuff you do. You'll be a new creation in Christ Jesus. But the gospel is a done, finished Completed, you bring nothing but the sin that made it necessary. What glorious news. If the gospel is you go and do, what horrible news. I've got a to-do list longer than my arm. Many of these things I'll never get to in this lifetime. But there's one thing that isn't up to me to do. My salvation. It's done. So he's saying it's in Christ Jesus that this thing has been done. And therefore, we find that Christ Jesus didn't just come to preach peace, although he did that. He didn't just come to offer peace, although he did that. He came to be our peace. He is our peace. Therefore, we can rightly say, if you have Christ, you have peace. If you don't have Christ, you don't have peace. That's why when Jesus cries over Jerusalem in Luke 19... And Holy Week, as he's standing on the Mount of Olives and he's looking over Jerusalem, 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 the city of peace. Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. What is the thing that was hidden from their eyes? What was the thing that they couldn't see? Was it just some new information? Was it some new law? Was it some new offer? No, it was Christ Jesus himself. You've rejected me and therefore you've rejected peace. If you had only known that I am that peace, you would have received me, you would have clung to me, you would have fled to me, and you would have found peace. He is our peace. So then we do well to ask this morning, well, what does that mean then? What is peace? If Christ Jesus is our peace. Shouldn't we know what it is that we find in him? That's a word that's thrown around all over the place these days, isn't it? Men are always coming together. They've got all these new plans. If we could all just disarm, then we'd have peace. Or if we could all just sit down around a table, then we would find peace. Or if we could all just put our differences aside, then we could find peace. Or perhaps if there was no more world religions, then we would find peace. So we asked this morning, what is peace? Well, surely it's all that the Apostle Paul has been talking about from Ephesians 1.1 up through this point. You remember how this story began? It's the way that I conclude every one of our worship service. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I've quoted to you before the great Martin Lloyd-Jones, but he says this, grace and peace. No two words are more important in the whole of the faith than these. Grace and peace. Grace is the beginning of our faith and peace is the end. Grace is the fountain, the spring, the source. It is that peculiar place in the mountain from which the mighty river you see rolling into the sea starts its race. Without it, there would be nothing. Grace is the origin, the source, and the fount of everything in the Christian life. But what does a Christian life mean? What is it meant to produce? The answer is peace. We must remember where we once were. Far off, alienated, children of wrath. What is the state of natural man? What is the state of man outside of Christ? What is the state of fleshly man? Man, as we are born into this world in Adam, it's that we're enemies of God. Romans 8, 7 says that the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But worse than our enmity towards God, worse than our cannotness 
of fulfilling the law of God is his disposition towards us. It's that we were enemies of God, children of wrath, separated by our sin. But most men refuse to believe it. Their, their, their minds and their hearts and their ears, they can't bear to believe it. And therefore, so few men are willing to preach it. You were once enemies of God. Not just today was this a problem, but in the days of old. David read to you earlier a passage from Jeremiah. Jeremiah had much to say about this because these people of God, Israel, his chosen nation, they continued, even as God's hand of judgment was upon them, even as the enemy swarmed the gates, even as they refused to repent and be reconciled to God, they continued to preach peace, peace, where there is no peace. They believed that because the temple of God was within the walls of Jerusalem, God couldn't possibly allow them to be destroyed. And so God spoke to a man called Jeremiah, and he kept saying, Do not say simply because we have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. That you have peace. I remind you again what David read. Jeremiah 23, 16. Do not listen. This is God speaking to his people. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, fulfill, uh, filling you with vain hopes. They speak a word of peace. It's vanity. It's vapor. It's a mist. It ain't peace. They speak visions of their own mind, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. They look to a people who despise God, who despise the word of God, and they say, it'll all be okay. It will go well with you. There will be peace. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own hearts, isn't that a message for this day? These false prophets, these damned prophets, they say to everyone who follows their own heart, no disaster will come to you. He says, don't listen to them. They're liars. They're heartless. They don't speak for me. They speak of their own vain glory, their own visions. They're trying to build a crowd. In the words of Jesus, they will cross a sea to make one more proselyte. They'll cross an ocean to cause one more man to follow them. And they will make them even more a child of hell than themselves. I want you to think about this. Is there anything more heartless than to lie to a man in a position like this? Let's imagine there's a man that's destined for the electric chair tomorrow. He's under the judgment. He's going to die for the sins that he's committed. And he would be released if he would but call out to mercy from the king that he has offended. If he would but turn from his sin and call out to the king who he has sinned against, he would be forgiven. Not only would he be pardoned for his sin, he would be welcomed, adopted, blessed as a son. And instead, what do you tell them? Peace, peace. Don't worry, brother. Your only problem is you just don't know how much he loves you. Your only problem is you don't realize that you're already his child because we're all his children. You don't realize that the king forgives. That's his job. And yet that's the message that we're sending to so much of the world. If we don't preach the truth of this gospel, we don't tr preach the reality that man, what he most desperately needs is peace. From the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden, what man needed was peace. From that moment when man sided with the enemy, he joined him in his rebellion against God, trying to make himself into God. He was separated, separated and alienated at war with God. From that day on, what man most desperately needed was peace. Again, I say more than how we feel about him. The greater concern is what does God think about me? What do we read in Matthew 7, 21? It isn't so much that they didn't know him. Lord, haven't we done all these things in your name? We've prophesied, we've taught, we've healed, we've pastored, we've deaconed, if that's a verb. We've done all the things that you've told us to do. And what does he say to him? Depart from me. I never knew you. It's not so much about whether we feel peaceful towards God. It says he feel peace towards us. And deep down in the quiet moments of the night, deep down in those moments when we do allow ourselves to sit alone and have that work of the Holy Spirit coming upon us, we know this is true. I believe that's why the world is so dead set on being so loud all the time, even in the worship service. 
one of the things that I'll hear from people that they'll comment when they come and they join us for the first time in worship is A, the somberness, the weight of what we do, but that we don't fill every second with noise. There's moments of silence before God. And the world is terrified of this. Many professing Christians are terrified of this. You know why? Because you just might feel the weight of this. That separation. That lack of peace. But beloved, I tell you, there's no greater gift in all the world than to know you don't have peace if you don't have peace. And so the world tries to manufacture their own inner peace. Doing everything they can to stop from considering the real issue. And in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 7, that there is a living God. He's an upright judge. And he is angry with me every single day. We find a world full of people that are running. That are, I think it's Proverbs 28.1 that says that the wicked man runs when no one is chasing. Don't we find around us a world full of people that are running when no one's chasing? It's because deep down within them they know there is a God and he's angry with me every single day. I don't have peace with God. That's what man needs more than anything else. It's peace. First and primarily with God. Now, Paul's going to get to that when we get to verse 16, that in Christ Jesus, he's reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. But this peace is a thing that God must originate, God must accomplish. Again, I say because man is dead in his sins and we only have hatred towards him or fear of God, that we would hide from God and never turn believing that he would give us peace. And so it's a thing that originates with God. It's a thing that's accomplished by God. It's a thing that can only be grounded in his grace and in his mercy. It's a thing that's bound up in his nature and in his promises. Nothing in us. That's why Paul says in Romans 5.10 that it was while we were yet enemies that we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And that's exactly what Paul has in mind here, the death of his son. That this peace that Christ Jesus is, the peace that can be found in him, it came at the most expensive price in the history of the world. It came at the cost of God's own son. Verse 13, brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, broken down, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. Verse 16, reconciling us both to God and one body through the cross. It's all what Christ Jesus has done in his flesh through the cross by his blood. But in Christ Jesus, we might approach the very throne room of God. Again, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Again, the opportunity to call this one whom we were once at war with, the God of the universe, this one whom high priest had to crawl down and come up the veil, covered by the blood of animals, of animal sacrifices with smoke, lest he look directly upon the face of God and die. This one welcomes us as father. He calls us son, lavishing there upon us his mercy and his grace. We see how this is so much more, I say, than a truce or just a tolerance. So much of my prayer life, if I'm honest, it looks like I believe that God is just tolerating me. As though he welcomes me into his presence, but he's just putting up with me. He's just gritting his teeth. For the sake of Jesus Christ, his son, and all that he has done, he'll allow me to come into his presence and he will withhold his wrath for a moment. But deep down in his soul, he truly desires still to destroy me. Beloved, that's not the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is all that belongs to Christ Jesus as the beloved son now is ours. He treats us with the love and mercy. He sees us with the love the adoration, he exalts over you with loud singing. Isn't that what Zephaniah 3 said? He rejoices over you. You recognize that when Jesus said that the angels of heaven rejoice when one sinner repents, it isn't God going, oh no, now I've got to pay up. He rejoices at the repentance that he has brought in the life of but one sinner. But of course, what Paul has in focus here, as I told you, is not so much our peace with God, but our peace with each other. Peace that is the subject here is the peace between Jew and Gentile, those who once hated each other vehemently. So much so that historians tell us that if a Jewish husband, a Jewish dad, was to find out that his son had fallen in love with a non-Jewish woman, they didn't have a wedding, they had a funeral. He might as well be dead to us. That this peace that comes between Jew and Gentile, it cannot be had, though, until we find peace with God. 
Again, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That sin that Adam and Eve committed. They could have rightly said with King David in Psalm 51, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. Who had David sinned against? Bathsheba, her husband, the nation, the army. But ultimately, who had David sinned against? Against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. That was surely the story of Adam and Eve there in the garden. And yet the consequences weren't merely vertical. They were horizontal as well. Boy, were they ever. We found the man and the woman there in the garden. Those who were once naked before each other and not ashamed. You remember the story of when God makes the woman from the rib of man. Brings her to the man. And he sings the first love song in the history of the world. At last. At last. And now he's hiding his nakedness from her. He's hiding in shame from her. The greatest gift, he's hiding. Not only does he feel this deep within his own soul, but he hears it from the mouth of God. As God comes and delivers to the man, the woman, and the serpent, the curse. He says to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That this most fundamental and intimate of relationships, this thing that was meant to be a supreme blessing in the life of this man who is made in the image of God, it is now broken and painful and difficult. Because against God and God only have I sinned, now marriage becomes hard. Horizontal relationships become hard. Ultimately, why? Because I've sinned against the living God. And we see the outworking of this right from the very beginning. As Cain takes the life of his brother Abel. This is an outworking. Against you and you only, O God, have I sinned. That sin manifests itself in the murder of my brother. Sin. Broken relationship with God. That's the real issue. That's at the core of the lack of peace everywhere that it is found. Everywhere we find men lacking peace, that's what it is. What causes quarrels and fights amongst you? Is it not this, that your passions, that your passions rage war within you? You're at war within yourself because you're not right with your creator, and therefore your passions lead you to war and fighting and quarreling amongst each other. It's this iniquity. That's what, there's three words that Scripture tends to use for sin. There's sin, which is that power, that thing that enslaves men. That disposition of his heart. There's transgressions, which are the actual things you do as you cross a line. Trespasses, you might call them, as you cross some boundary that God has set for you. But then there's a word called iniquity. And that's the twistedness of our own heart. Your passions are disordered. Your desires are disordered. Your relationship with others are disordered. Your heart towards your wife is disordered. Why? Because you're not right with God. I ask you to look around you. Look around us. Surely we would have figured it out as a society by now, right? We live in a culture where there is more therapy and more doctors and more drugs and more self-help books than any time in the history of the world. Do you find peace? Do you see less anxiety and less depression and less suicide than you once did? I don't. I find man constantly seeking for peace. And then what about, what about amongst men and women and men and each other and nations and nations? There are more laws and more rules and more cultural mores about protecting not just the physical person, but the feelings of everyone around us. How long have we been told that if we would just encourage people in their sin, if we would endorse their sin? Wasn't this the way that the story went? Listen, it shouldn't be illegal for gay people to be gay. Don't you all agree? Yeah, sure, why not? Well, but we should allow gay people to get married then, shouldn't we? I mean, there's tax benefits. Ah, oh, yeah, whatever. What does it hurt us? Well, but no, but now you've got to participate in this thing. You've got to celebrate this thing. You've got to bake a cake for the thing. Whoa. Well, no, no, now you've got to look at little boys that call themselves little girls, and you've got to call them little girls. And it is all done in the name of peace. If you'll just endorse me in my love of my sin, we promise then eventually we're going to get to peace. Look around you. We're a world who has laid down for the sake of so-called peace. Do you find peace? Do you find less hatred? 
Do you find the ones that we're trying to make peace with, do they seem to have peace even in of themselves? No, they want more. Because unless and until we are right with God, we will never have peace with each other. But so long for the Christian church, we have been convinced that if we could just do away with religion, if we could just do away with being so dang zealous for the sake of God and for the word of God, then surely then all this would just go away. It would just be utopia and everybody would just live. There'd be no more wars. There'd be no more fighting. There'd be no more suicide. There'd be no more depression. Beloved, it's a lie straight from the pit of hell. And we're seeing it play out right before our eyes. There can be no peace with man. There can be no peace within. There can be no peace unless you are in Christ Jesus at peace with God. Go back to the... Go back to the Tower of Babel. You you see what happens is every time we see the world coming together with so-called peace, every time we see the world coming together and and, and some sense of, of worldly unity, what is it always directed against? God. The world can agree on one thing. There is no God and he's not worthy of our worship. Or there is a God and he's the God that I have made in my own image. But the problem with this is when we can all only agree that we're opposed to God, when we can all only agree that we will not submit to Yahweh, the God of the Bible, what we've done in essence is we've made all ourselves gods. And now we're just in an Avenger movie, all the gods fighting against each other. There can be no peace until there is peace with God. Real and lasting peace. True peace. The kind of peace that God promises us. It can only be found in him. It can never come through external means. It can never come through calling what is evil, right, condoning, winking at. Through our silence, through our participation, through our refusal to say the hard things in the name of love. That will never bring peace. Never bring peace for the person on the other side. Never bring peace for us with those people. Peace is only found in him. 1 John 3, 1, the reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know him. There will always be this separation because the world doesn't know the God in whom we trust. They don't trust the Christ in whom we are found. So Paul is making clear to us that the only place that we will ever find peace is as we come to be reconciled to God in him. Now, let me, let me be clear. As we are surrounded by people who live with an absolute absence of peace, people in our own homes, people in our own families, people in our own neighborhoods, people whom we desperately love, as we find them surrounding us and they're, and, and they're just, they're in turmoil, they're at war, they're at war with God, they're at war with their neighbor, they're at war with their self. We can have this, we can have this burning desire within our heart, just again, I say to bring peace at whatever cost. We will lay down the truth of God We will fudge on the truth of God. We will sacrifice the truth of God. We won't say the hard truth of God in exchange for peace. To those people I look and I say, no, the only hope for peace we have is in the gospel of Christ Jesus. It's in the thing that's been done. We look to those people and we say to them, you will never have peace until you have peace with God. You will never have peace with God until you are found in Christ Jesus. But let me be clear. Just because you go and preach that message doesn't mean that they will receive that peace. And therein lies the sense of hopelessness that so many feel. Because your son or your daughter or your spouse or your coworker or your neighbor, they don't have peace. The only peace that's real, you offer it to them and they reject it. They spit it out. They flee from it. They call it hatred. But beloved, you continue to bring that peace before them because that's the only message that will ever bring them peace. Listen, if your kid is dying of cancer and you've got the only drug that can heal them and they reject that drug, you don't say, okay, well then cotton candy, I guess it is. We'll hope for the best. You don't feed them more of the thing that is poisoning them. You bring them the only antidote. You plead with them to take the only thing that will heal them. You hold it before them and you say, this is the only means of peace. I plead with you in the name of God. Would you receive it? Does this mean you will get your heart ripped out? Absolutely. Does this mean that you will be misunderstood? Absolutely. Does this mean that you may lose relationships? Absolutely. 
But the alternative to this is not some other form of peace. It's not peace. It's a thing which can't rightly be called peace. So we call them to the only place of peace, to the Prince of Peace, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then we trust him with the results. And I know, I mean, I'm looking around this room. I'm looking around this room, and I've just ripped half of your hearts out. Because there's not a person in this room that doesn't have a relationship exactly like this. Where all you wanted more than anything else was restoration and peace. But the person on the other end rejected the only means of peace in Christ Jesus. And so everything within your soul, because you're not heartless, you're not hateful, you don't love alienation, you don't love tension. So everything within your flesh says, just give a little. Why do you have to be so zealous? Why does it have to be God's way all the time? In the words of my wife, why do we always have to do the hard thing? Because that's the only way of peace. We trust that whatever we would capture by abandoning, abandoning that way of peace, it wouldn't be real. It wouldn't be sustainable and it would be hatred to the one you love. It would be singing a sweet song to the man on the way to the electric chair. This is always the case. This is always the case. Even, even amongst those who call themselves Christian. I, I've known so many people over the years that they, it seems like they cannot hold on, even amongst the, the church, they cannot hold on to a relationship to save their life. They're always at war with their so-called brothers and sisters. They're never at peace for longer than a season. And then you finally you sit down and you talk through the issue with them. And what you realize is they're not at war with man. They're not at war with their brother or with their sister. They're at war with God. So where do I direct those brothers and those sisters as they come to me? To God. I call out to them to rest in Christ. To believe the promises. He says that he is our peace. He says that he has accomplished the peace. Will you just believe what he's done? Will you rest in what he's done? You work from the standpoint of he is my peace and he has brought peace amongst the brethren. That's the only place we'll find peace in a place like this. Even amongst those who prof profess the name of Jesus Christ. Anytime there is division, listen to me. Anytime there is division, anytime there is backbiting, anytime there is fighting, anytime there is dissension, anytime there is war, it's because we're not resting in the peace that Christ Jesus has accomplished. The peace that he has come to bring. We will never fix a lack of peace on our own. It is only as we both get our eyes off of each other and onto him. Learn to lean back into his breast like John at the Last Supper. Look into his eyes and say, you are my Prince of Peace. I long for the peace that you've already purchased. Until that moment comes, you will never have peace with yourself, with your spouse, with your children, with anyone. This peace is an objective reality. You must believe it to be true. What does John say in 1 John 4, 7? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Listen, now he's telling us to do something. He's telling us to love. He's telling us to enjoy this peace. He's telling us to extend forgiveness. It's a thing you do. You love. You forgive. You have peace. You have mercy. You extend the grace. Listen to how he goes on. Whoever loves has been born of God. It's a thing that God has done. Just as a newborn baby cries when it comes out of its mother's womb, you will love as you are born again in Christ. And yet still you're the one doing the loving. You're the one doing the forgiving. You're the one having to bear each other's burdens. You're the one having to overlook an offense. You're the one that has given up as you've come to Christ Jesus the right to be offended. But trusting that he does the work. That he empowers the love. That he brings the peace. And we see in Paul. Surely the apostle Paul is thinking about his own life as he's writing these words. I want you to think about who he was. He was a man that thought he had peace. He had everything a Jewish boy could want. A Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, zealous for the law of God. He thought he was at peace with God and he was certainly at peace with his neighbors. He wasn't at peace with the church. So he finds himself persecuting, chasing after the church, hating men and women. But who encounters him on the road? God. The resurrected son of God. 
The risen Lord looks at him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's not them that you have beef with. It's me. What did Samuel say? Or excuse me, what did God say to Samuel when the people demanded a king? Samuel, it's not you they've rejected. It's me. I say this to parents all the time. When your children rebel against you, it's not you they've rejected. It's God. So he finds out pretty quickly. My beef isn't with these people. My beef is with the living God. And everything changed. By the power of God, without Paul's permission, without his request, without any steps towards God, while he was yet a sinner, while he was still an enemy of God, transformed in a moment, at peace with God, that remained only between him and God. Oh no, horizontally as well. He gave his whole life to his love for the brethren. His love for the brothers. He loved those who were of the family of God more than ever before. But check this out. Did this cause him then to hate those that were outside the family of God? No, he loved them all the more. As he cries out in Romans, I would be damned if you would save the Jews. Your love for the church, your zeal for the glory of God, your reconciliation to him, your willingness to save the truth, it is driven by a greater love, not just for him, not just for the brethren, but also for the world. So you want to love your spouse more? You want to love your neighbor more? You want to love your enemy more? You get right with God. You rest in the peace that Christ has won. So that we see him having peace not only with God and peace not only with those inside and peace not only with those who are outside, but peace inside himself finally and once and for all. This is the same Paul that we see singing hymns of praise in a jail, beaten and waiting to die. You want peace in your heart? You want peace like a river? You want abiding peace? I'm not talking about peace that's tied up in circumstances or the emotions of the mo moment. I'm ta not talking about peace that ebbs and flows with your bank account or with the obedience of your children, or with the way your boss looks at you, or with your own health. I'm talking about real abiding peace. You only find that peace right here in Christ Jesus reconciled to God. Christ Jesus is our peace. Only in him. Only in him. Having been reconciled to God, because the righteousness that he accomplished and imputed to our account because of him taking our sin upon himself. It's only there that we can have this new heart and new affections and find love and unity and peace for one another. Now let's look here. That was my introduction. Yes. <laughs> let's look here at how Paul explains this. We're going to dip our toe in the water. We'll come back when we're next together. I want you to look again at the way that the Apostle Paul speaks about how God has accomplished this in Christ Jesus, how he has brought this peace between the most mortal of enemies, the Jews and the Gentiles. It says that he is our peace and has made two peoples into one people. In the second half of 15, he's created in himself one new man in the place of two. And again, I must draw your attention to the reality that he's building something altogether new. It's a new man. Something that had never been before, that the world can't accomplish, the world can't build, only in him. He's taking two men and he's making one out of them. He's creating in himself one new man. And it's so united, it's like we're one body. One family. When one member hurts, the whole hurts. When one member succeeds, the whole enjoy the benefits from this. We're united as one in him. And look at the way he says he does it. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You see that word there? He has broken down. Again, I tell you, something that he's already accomplished. Peace I, leave, I give you, not the way that the world gives you peace. I give you lasting peace. I give you real peace. I give you abiding peace. Even when you feel the tensions are high. I've already purchased your peace. Now believe it. It says that he accomplished this peace by breaking something down in his flesh. Now, again, I've already pointed to this in his flesh. Surely this is a statement of his crucifixion, not just his death, but his life and resurrection as well. All that he came to be as the son of God came to become the son of man. All that he is in his flesh, through his death, through his resurrection, that's how he's broken this thing down. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. If I can paraphrase that for you, what the apostle Paul is saying here is that Christ has made us both one 
He has reconciled us. He's brought us peace between these two most mortal of enemies. He has done this by means of breaking down the wall. That's what the word and is. You see, he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh. That and means by. The Apostle Paul isn't saying Christ Jesus has done two separate things, altogether different things. Christ Jesus has done this one thing called making peace and uniting you as one. And, by the way, he's also done this other thing, which is called breaking down the wall. He's saying he's made the peace, he's brought the unity, he's made the one man by breaking down the wall. Christ accomplished this peace by breaking down a dividing wall of hostility via his crucifixion. Now, I don't have time to celebrate this, and maybe only Kerry Camp will even understand why I'm so excited by this. But this word breaking down, it's the Greek word luo. When you're a baby Greek student, every single time you start to learn about verbs, the first verb they give you is the word luo. Because it's short and it's easy, and even a dummy like me can remember how to work through all the different, ver all the different tenses. Luo, it means to loose. means to break. I've been waiting to use this word. Y'all don't have to be excited. I'm excited. Thank you. <laughs> Luo, Luis, Luane, Luamen, Luete, Luusi. It's to loose. It's to break down. It's to destroy something. What did Christ Jesus come to do? He came to crush the head of the serpent. What did Christ Jesus do? He came to reconcile us to God. What did Christ Jesus come to do? He came to break down, to loose, to destroy a wall of hostility that existed between Gentile and Jew came to break it down. It's a wall of hostility. You get this. Whenever we talk about the total inability of man, man's inability to please God, man's inability to trust in God, man's inability to repent in and of himself and be saved as he is in his natural state, we make clear that this isn't because God is stiff-arming the man. It isn't because man wants to get to God and God won't receive him. It isn't because this man has lost his faculties. He's lost his capacity to believe in something. It's because his heart won't allow him. And we see this very clearly at this point with regards to men. We can't be reconciled because there's a hostility between us. We saw this most clearly with Joseph and his brothers. You remember what we read in Genesis 37, 4, that when Joseph's brothers realized that their father loved Joseph most of all, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Does this mean that somebody cut out Joseph's brother's tongues? Does this mean that they had a lobotomy and they couldn't remember any nice words to say to their brother? No, their heart wouldn't allow it. They were filled with hatred and enmity. There was a wall of hostility between them that had to be broken down if there was ever going to be unity. Otherwise, they could not speak peacefully to him. And so what does Jesus' death have to do with this? How does Jesus' death break down this wall of hostility? Broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So this is, in large part, what I'm going to come back to next time we're together. What, what did Jesus do with the law? What is this picture? And there's some great interpretive challenges here. In the NASB, the way it's interpreted is this. Listen now. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. That translation says that this wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile, the wall of hostility and enmity, it was the law itself. But we know that the law itself, I think the ESV has it right when it says that Christ Jesus broke down this hostile wall by means of abolishing the law of commandments. The law for itself is a thing that is good. The law for itself was not meant to be a thing that created enmity and hostility. Romans 7, Paul says, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. For the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which was good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is just. Enmity, hatred, strife is sin. Bucking up against the law, sure. But that's not what the law was given by God to produce. But I've got to be very clear at this point. The law was given to produce division and separation. This is a gift of God after he had already redeemed his people from Israel, uh, Egypt, excuse me. He brought them to Sinai and he says, here's how you're to live a life that's separate from the world. You're the ecclesia, the called out ones. You're the saints, the holy and set apart ones. You're the ones that are different from the world, set out from the world. And this law shows you what that's meant to look like. Much like the circumcision, though, it became a matter of pride. Instead of, an act of, instead of a, a gift of grace... 
that showed these people how they were to live as God's people in a dark and sinful world. Instead of being used of them as a light of the world, that's what they were to be. A kingdom of priests. What do priests do? Reconcile God to man. There would be a light unto the world. That's not just a New Testament statement. Isaiah, you're to be a light unto the world. You're to draw other people. Abraham, through you the nations of the earth will be blessed. Instead, they created from this a wall of hostility. A wall of pride. A wall of enmity. The kind of wall that causes us to say, na-na-na-boo-boo, you're the uncircumcised, we're the circumcised. It's not the law that was the problem. The law was there to set up boundaries, to set clear pictures to the world. And it continues to this day, James 4.4, 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy with God. 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with believers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what accord has Christ with Belial or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? We know that this echoes off into eternity. I happen to believe that the story that Jesus gives in Luke 16 is a true story, not just the parable, the parable or the story, there I go calling it a parable, a story of Lazarus and a rich man. Whatever you believe there, Christ Jesus paints a picture of one who is at Abraham's bosom and one who is suffering horrendously. You remember the rich man, he received all the good he was going to receive in this life. And he cries out to the man, to the man in paradise, to the man in Abraham's bosom. He calls out, would you dip your finger in a drop of water and touch it to my tongue? And what does the man say? Besides all of this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. There's a chasm that exists between those who are outside and those who are inside. And part of how that was seen in the people of God was the giving of his law. It was the showing them the vision it was to be between them and the world. And even on this side of the cross is those who are of the ecclesia, the called out ones, the church, those who have been set apart. There is to be this division. Not hatred, not enmity, not strife. Again, Paul's love for the Jews increased as he became a Christian. And yet there's always going to be a division. There's always going to be some separation. Not because there's enmity on our part. Paul says, look, make no mistake. Anyone who seeks to do what is right and honor Christ in the Lord, you must recognize that there will be persecution. So for us, we've got to understand, I need to wrap this up. For us, we've got to understand that what Paul is promising us here is not automatic peace with the world. He is saying that we are going to live a life that is at peace with God, reconciled with God, blessed of God, adopted by God, brought into the presence of God, nothing but grace and mercy from God. That flowing from that is going to be a love like never before for the saints, for the brethren. There's something very broken in a man who calls himself Christian when he finds himself more drawn to the darkness of the world than to the saints within his community. When we find ourselves... Quickly to join ourselves to the ways of the world because of politics, because of race, because of recreation, because of work, and in disunity within the church, something is busted. He says, as you are right with me, as you enjoy this peace in Christ Jesus with me, it will overflow into peace with the saints. I'm building you together into one new people. You'll find some sense of peace within yourself. And then as far as it is up to you, live at peace with the world. If there's going to be strife, if there's going to be enmity, if there's going to be hatred, and there will be, it will always come from them. It must not come from you. You must be willing to lay down your life for the sake that they might come to know the gospel. But that's the peace that the Apostle Paul is talking about here. That's the peace that Paul is promising us in Christ Jesus. So I cannot help but assume that in a room this size, there are many, perhaps most of you, they walked in here feeling anything but peaceful. Some of you walked in here knowing I'm not at peace with God. You just knew it plain and simple. To you I say in Christ Jesus there is nothing but peace. Rest in him. There's some of you that come in here and you feel incredible tension. Within your own family, within your neighborhood, within your friend group, you feel incredibly tension. And to you I say in Christ Jesus there is peace. But I imagine there's even many more of you that walked into this place and you had anything but peace in your heart. It, it's a storm. 
It's a raging storm. You can't settle your mind. You can't settle your heart. You can't sleep at night because you're up, wetting your pillow with tears because you are filled with anything but peace. Beloved, I say to you that in Christ Jesus, there is peace. Rest in him. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. I thank you for the attention span of these people. Fathers, we covered much. Most of all, Father, I thank you for the peace that is promised ours in Christ Jesus. Thank you that he is our peace, that in him we are reconciled not only to you, but to each other. So, Father, I pray that you help us to rest and trust in that, to enjoy and, and to bask in the peace and the love and the unity that you're building even here in this body right now. I pray that you help us to never take it for granted, never... Never take it lightly, but to celebrate all that you have done for us in making this peace in Christ Jesus, our Lord, knowing exactly what it has cost him. Father, we ask these things for the sake of his name, to your glory.